You're listening to For Eternity and Until, where together we uncover how to bring heaven to earth in our everyday choices and live the life we were created for. I'm your host, Tori May Hine, and I'm so glad you're here. Let's get this party started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. Here's the deal. We're going to shift things from now on, and we're going to change things up. For the last three episodes, I have written out scripts that I have read verbatim, basically, to you here on this podcast. And the reason why I did it originally this way was because I really wanted to be very intentional and concise about the things that I wanted to say. But when I threw it out to so many of you who follow this podcast, and I asked you, What's your feedback? So many of you guys responded saying, we want the unscripted Tory. We just want you to release and let go and get real a little bit. And I was like, no, that's not the response that I want. Oh, man. I can't tell you. It really makes a lot of sense because uh, last episode was all about feeling fear. So that immediately made me feel very afraid because here I am needing to step into further vulnerability and get real and honest with you guys. And here I am because I'm choosing faith and we're walking forward with this together. Uh, The other feedback that I received from so many of you guys was that you really desire to go through actual scripture together in community. There's so many other amazing resources for reading through the Bible and that sort of stuff out there. I want to say, first and foremost, that I am not a scholar. I love God's word. I have studied God's word my entire life. I've got God's word hidden in my heart, but I'm on this journey together. So I don't want our journey of reading through scripture together to feel like I'm just sitting here teaching you. I really want this to feel like an atmosphere where you're sitting with a close friend and you're reading the Bible together and you're talking about it, all right? I want this to feel familiar and safe, but I also want to be able to ask hard questions. Here's the the problem with approaching things with only topics in the church and on podcasts and in books and yada, 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 is that we can pick and choose the things that we really want to talk about. And then we can leave out the really hard conversations that people aren't sure how to approach. And that cultivates an atmosphere where there's big elephants in the room where we don't really know how to navigate through and have conversations about these specific topics. And honestly, now more than ever in the society that we are in and with the topics that we're all talking about with this racial tension in the country and this uh, topic of racism and how do we address it and so many people waking up to the reality of it. We've got political campaigns going on in America, at least for those of you guys that are listening from other countries. We're navigating through social issues. And to be honest, I'm watching so many of my friends who I grew up with in the church or went to Bible college with leaving their faith. And I have settled with this and, and just brought it to the Lord over the last couple of weeks. And I'm like, God, what do we need? I want to see your church strengthened. I want to see the community that I influenced strengthened in your truth. And his answer was so simple. 
Give them my word. Give them my words. Not your perfectly crafted sayings or your sticky statements. They need my word. (laughs) And I kept going round and round like, okay, well, where do I start with this? Do I have to start with Jesus? Do I need to start with Genesis and give them the entire picture? But every time it felt like I opened up my uh, my app or my phone or my Bible or whatever, and I kept getting led back to 1 Corinthians. Now, this freaks me out because there's so many topics in 1 Corinthians that are very relevant for what we're walking through right now, but also so stinking scary for me because I know they're going to be conversations that we're not going to want to have and uh, that will feel very hard and uncomfortable. We're going to be talking about sexual immorality and wisdom and gifts of the spirit. And I'm going to try my very best to offer you my words of wisdom and insight into these things, but I am not going to offer you a well-crafted study plan as of yet. I'm believing for that in the future. Mama ain't got capacity for that right now. What I do have capacity for is reading with you and learning alongside of you, praying with you, and diving into God's word. And I am just going to believe that he's going to come through on his promise to show up. And Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction. And he's going to bring clarity. And he's going to lead you toward righteousness. He's going to convict you of sin. And he's going to empower you to do good works. And to lead the life that God has called you to live for eternity and until. It's what this is all about, right? Oh, it's going to be so good. Okay, let's dive in. So I am reading from the Christian Standard Bible. My friend gave me this Bible as a gift a few years ago for my birthday, and I think it's very beautiful. This is actually the She Reads Truth Bible, but I just read on Instagram a couple days ago that Proverbs 31 Ministries is also partnering with this Christian Standard Bible version um, of the Bible, and they're also creating a book similar with devotions and illustrations and stuff in it. So I think it's really pretty. I like pretty things like the Bible. When those things collide, I'm all for it. So before I dive into the actual reading of 1 Corinthians, let's read the background together at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians so that we can have a little bit of context. So I'm going to read the introduction at the very front of the book. Again, this is the Christian Standard Bible, and it's the She Reads Truth background. Okay, so if you've got that Bible, sweet, open it up. If not, just listen a little bit. I just want a little bit of context here before we dive into the actual scripture so that we can see how this is fitting in the entirety of the Bible as a whole, because we're not starting from Genesis and going all the way through Revelation. I'm going to start here in 1 Corinthians. Yes, I know, random, but I'm believing that there's a reason behind all of these things. I want you to at least have a little bit of a historical context for why this book exists, why it's a part of the Bible. And so let's read together. So on the timeline, it says, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church during the last year of his three-year ministry at Ephesus, probably a few weeks before Pentecost in the spring of AD 56. Here's a little bit of background. 1 Corinthians is the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. 
His earlier letter to Corinth, which is not included in the canon of scripture, but is referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, when he's warning them not to associate with the sexually immoral. The writing of the second letter, 1 Corinthians, was prompted by reports of rivalry within the church. That's not happening right now. <coughs> okay, anyways. Paul addressed uh, this topic in his letter, along with other troubling issues, including an incestuous relationship among the membership of the church. Great. Division that rose during the observance of the Lord's Supper and confusion over the resurrection of the dead. As he was writing this letter to the Corinthian church, he must have received a letter from them asking his opinion on various issues because he included replies to those concerns as well. So this is a letter where he is responding back to some questions that this church wrote to him and asked. We can tell, even just from the intro, that there's some stuff happening in this church. And I mean, I I got on the phone with a friend earlier this week who is just really struggling from some post-traumatic church disorder (laughs) syndrome, post-traumatic church syndrome, uh, where she's just experienced a lot of hurt in the church. And I get it. Look, this is one of the very first Christian churches after Jesus ascended into heaven. And there's an incestuous relationship. There's rivalry. There's anger. There's division. There is sexually sexual immorality that's being allowed in the church congregation. Guys, nothing is new under the sun. This sort of stuff was happening right off the bat. Why? It's because it's the condition of our hearts. The church is still full of people. People, people, people. And Christ has given us the freedom to choose. And he's given us faith. It says in God's word that faith is a gift from God, first and foremost. But this faith doesn't just change things right overnight. It doesn't mean that you immediately are realigned and perfected in your physical body. But the Bible says that it's a process of sanctification really through the whole rest of our lives until we meet him face to face in heaven. That's the reason why the topic of this podcast is learning to live for eternity in our until and taking the truths of God's word and and applying them to our lives right now, knowing that they're going to reap eternal reward on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's kingdom come. This is the purpose of why Jesus came and why he liberated us through his sacrifice and called us toward this righteous living. But obviously people didn't have it all figured out then. They don't have it all figured out now, but we have hope, hope in Christ, Christ alone. Keep reading. It says, here's the message and the purpose of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is the most literary of Paul's letters, using stylistic devices like irony, repetition, alliteration, and other word plays to communicate to his readers the necessity of accepting the Lord's authority over their lives. Jesus is Lord, and believers are his possession. This is the main theme of Paul's letter. For Paul, whatever issue was discussed, the answer was always addressed with the reminder of God's authority over them. 
In addition to motivating the Corinthian church to acknowledge the Lord's ownership of them, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to set forth the implication for their lives. Within this theme of Christ's authority, Paul addressed key topics such as Christian unity, morality, the role of women, spiritual gifts, love, and the resurrection. Y'all ready for this? Let's dive in. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sophonus, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Thanksgiving. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, let's rewind a little bit first before we keep going in chapter one and talk about how beautiful this introduction is. So, Verse 2, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he is writing to people who already believe in Christ Jesus. This is not a letter to people outside the church. This is a letter to the church. Sanctified. What does sanctified mean? To sanctify means to set apart as or declare holy or to consecrate. It also means free from sin or purified. This is a big deal because this is a book where he is going to be correcting these people um, with some pretty harsh and very specific correction. But he starts the entire book unifying everybody and addressing the fact that these people have been sanctified in Christ. This is not This is sanctified present tense. This is not, oh, you are being sanctified. Those things do exist in the New Testament where it says you are sanctified. You are also being sanctified um, in different contexts. But right now he is saying you are sanctified. You are set free from sin. Um, You are set apart. You are holy. You have been consecrated by Christ Jesus. And he says you're called saints with all those in every place who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he leads the entire message saying grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So immediately level ground. 
The cross or the ground before the cross is absolutely level ground. Their Jesus was also their Jesus. Paul's Jesus was the Corinthian church's Jesus. Paul's, the sanctifying power that that was worked in Paul's life, who was writing this letter, is the same sanctifying power that was given to him by Jesus Christ himself to the people in Corinth. Even with all of the condition of sin that needed to be removed from this church, he still leads addressing them as saints. This is so important because you have to remember that the central gospel message is not a gospel of works. We, we as Christians do not believe that you can earn your way into right standing with God. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. Jesus came because we could not fulfill the law on our own. We could not meet the right standing in our condition of sin because we've chosen to separate ourselves from God. We chose our wisdom over God's wisdom in the Garden of Eden. And from that moment on, we had the knowledge of good and evil and the presence of sin and the result of sin is death. So at the very beginning, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, this trinity, this this uh, community of God, God one but three parts, started concocting, is that a word? Yeah, I think that's a word. Concocting, creating a plan for the redemption of the world because we were created by God for relationship with God. So from that moment on, he set in place a story of the redemption that was coming and this promise of a Messiah who would save them, Jesus Christ. So now we live in the freedom of Jesus Christ. His blood paid the sacrifice for our sins so that we are no longer condemned by the sin that we committed, but we're set free from it. That's the reason why he's calling these people sanctified. Because when we get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to look at us or God the Father is not going to look at us and say, oh, wow, look at you. Well done, good and faithful Tory. You did all the right things. Please enter into the heavenly gates. He's going to look at me and he's going to see Christ's covering of his blood over my life. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not to me in my brokenness and in my imperfection, but he's going to look at me and he's going to see the covering of Jesus over my life because I've placed my faith in him. And that covering is what justifies me. Now enter in. Now enter in. It doesn't hinge. Our salvation does not hinge on our performance, but on the promise of God. And it is fulfilled and it is final in Christ. So verse four is when he begins expressing his gratitude for these people. He says, I thank God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. I think this is a beautiful way to summarize our relationship with one another in the church. No matter who they are in Christ, we're family, right? We're not just friends, we're family. So when I'm thanking God for the presence of another person that I'm sitting with, I'm first off thanking God for them because God created them, which means that he has purpose for them from the very beginning whoever they are, whatever their social class is, whatever their influence or type of personality, whether we're close, whether we're not, doesn't matter. They're human. They've got breath in their lungs. I'm going to thank God for them. But further, as brothers and sisters in Christ, even in our disagreement, 
I thank God for them because of the grace that God has given to them in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that the presence of God's grace covers their life. He says in verse 5, I'm grateful that you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and in all knowledge. This is a really beautiful leadership skill of Paul where he is immediately uh, revealing to them and drawing out and addressing their strengths as a church. Speech and knowledge. In this way, he says in verse 6, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, can you hear my cat in the back? Isn't that so annoying? She's getting fixed tomorrow. And um, she's just back there. Being so loud, and you can all hear it on the recording. I know you can. Don't lie to me. <laughs> I told you that this is going to be um, this is going to be raw and real. Okay, guys, here we go. Uh, where am I? Okay, verse eight. He said you will um, that he will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key. Here, God is faithful. God is faithful. Every single thing that was listed in that uh, paragraph of thanksgiving that Paul is offering to this church is basically summarized with those three words. God is faithful. God began the work. He's going to sustain the work. He is going to fulfill the work. We thank God for one another because we are in God and we have a heavenly perspective and a heavenly lens over our lives and the lives of other people. God is faithful. You see the central message right away that Paul is offering to these people. It's founded on the presence and the authority of God. You were called by him, he says. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You were called. And my friend, you listening to this podcast, you were called. Faith is a gift that is given to you by God. It's not something that you can cultivate in yourself. He has given you free will to choose, but he has also given you the gift of faith. Whether that's just the faith the size of a mustard seed or whether it's, you know, faith the size to move mountains. The Bible says really that it's just the faith of a mustard seed to move mountains. You can say to that mountain, move and it'll be moved. Sometimes that mountain is not an actual physical mountain, but it's actually the mountains that exist in and through our heart. There's a mountain that exists within each and every one of us that divides us between us and right standing with God and faith the size of a mustard seed can move it. You were called You are here for such a time as this. You are breathing and your breath in your lungs is the very evidence that God has purpose for you. He formed you in your mother's womb. You are not forgotten. You are seen. You are known. You are loved. And though he may be disciplining you right now in the season, though he may be teaching you, though your faith may be being tried and you're experiencing the empowerment of a persevering spirit, we can thank God because why? God is faithful. God is faithful. He has called you by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there would be no divisions among you, and that you may be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that nobody can say that they were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Cephas, but beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Oh man, there is so much here. Let's go back to verse 10. I urge you, you hear the urgency in Paul's voice, and he is not skipping a beat. Right away, he's unifying everybody, like we just talked about, and then addressing division. Now, division is the tactic of the enemy to weaken the church. Jesus, when he was on his knees praying in John 17 to his father, he prayed for his disciples. And the one thing that he repeated over and over and over again was a prayer for unity, a prayer for unity. Make them one as you and I are one. This is the heart cry of Jesus. So when these people in Corinth were disagreeing, they were saying that they were, it's kind of like almost denominations. <laughs> oh, well, I am Baptist. Well, I am Catholic. Well, I am this and that. And we're not going to go into um, church history and all of the blah, blah, blahs of all of that. I'm just saying there was division in the church and the division was coming directly from a misplaced identity. They were placing their identity in Paul. I belong to Paul. Well, I belong to Apollos. That's another Christian leader. Well, I belong to Cephas or I belong to Christ. And his question here is, is Christ divided? And the answer is obviously no. Christ is not divided. And he kind of is almost throwing this out there as a joke. Like you can almost kind of hear the tone in his voice when he says, was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Here I am. I'm writing this this letter to you. Was I the one that died on the cross for you? Yeah, no. Or were you baptized in Paul's name? And he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you guys so that you wouldn't stop, you wouldn't start worshiping me and misplacing your identity in me. He says, here's what I am called to do. And I am not going to dissuade from this calling that I have been called to preach the gospel, the good news of Christ come, the Messiah that came and rescued, the the payment for our sins, the liberation from sin, the freedom from death into eternal life. I'm preaching this gospel. 
And Paul says that he's not preaching it in verse 17 with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ would not would be emptied of its effect. Man, isn't that interesting? I, I even fell into this over the course of the last couple of weeks thinking about, gosh, what do I really want to talk about next on this podcast? Well, it has to be really good. Oh my gosh, and it's got to have a beautiful filter on it. And I've got to have an Instagram strategy. And I've got to have all these things. And really, Holy Spirit was just like, hey, go back to those words. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And don't empty it of its effect. Offer the gospel. It's good enough. It's lasted as a uh, as a tool of transformation, as the source of transformation since the beginning of time. And whether you put a nice filter on it or not doesn't really matter. It's just the fact that the power exists in the truth of who God says that he is. Okay, in the truth of what God has done for us. Preach that word. And his urgent call to the brothers and sisters in Corinth was that there would be no, 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 no divisions among you and that you, they would be unified with the same understanding and the same conviction. And that is still the prayer over the church right now. And that's my, what I've been praying for this whole last couple of weeks. God, unify your church. I'm opening up Instagram and Facebook, and I'm seeing believers getting at each other and angry with one another. And that, ver- that word rivalry, okay, it says that in uh, verse 11, it says, it's been reported to me, my brothers and sisters, that there is rivalry among you. This is a contentious spirit. This is a spirit that is ready to argue and fight and it's prepared. You know, when you're on edge, like if you're driving down the street and you're just ready to you're like you're ready to road rage <laughs> so that the smallest thing happens and you don't even blink before you're immediately ticked off and you're saying whatever you need to say, that's kind of the same sort of thing, only it's a spiritual condition where when we're ready with our guns up. And we're ready to fight, but we're not fighting against evil. We're fighting against one another. That's having a contentious spirit. Jesus was angry and he turned tables over when he needed to. And he was very vocal and he, he was very harsh more so than with anybody else than with the religious leaders who were arrogant and who placed their faith in their own works and in their own righteousness and saw themselves as better than everybody else. He was pretty serious and like in your face for that. But he never had a contentious spirit. You saw him walking in the fruit of the spirit every single step of his journey. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He was always submitted to the will of his father. He wasn't looking to be right. He was looking to bring people to God. He was looking to bring healing. So he didn't come in guns a-blazing, although he has the fullness of the knowledge of God in him. John 1.1 says that in the word, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, Christ incarnate, Jesus, the word of God became flesh. So he was the word. He had the right answer. He has the right answer even now and a perspective for us and wisdom from heaven for us. But he doesn't offer it to us with a contentious spirit. Do you remember what it says at the very beginning of of James? Let me just flip there really fast and read it to you. 
Okay, James 1, verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for a doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from God being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. This is one of my favorite promises in scripture because God himself is offering us his wisdom. How many of you guys have gotten on Facebook or Instagram today and genuinely asked a question and you always have to qualify it right now? You're like, I genuinely want to know, okay? I'm not trying to come off as this and that, but I just genuinely want to know while I bash you and tell you how you're absolutely wrong about this, 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 and that. (laughs) Oh, it just, it immediately puts your guard up, right? We're not actually curious. We're there to offer our two cents. I'm guilty. I'm working through it. But when I come to God and I ask him, God, will you give me wisdom? His promise is always that he will give us wisdom. It says he gives wisdom to all, that he gives wisdom generously, and he gives wisdom ungrudgingly. I read that this earlier this week, and I was like, oh my gosh, praise God. <laughs> praise God that he gives me his God-given wisdom, his eternal perspective wisdom, and that he offers it to me without a grudge, without an agenda, without, you know, a negative opinion, without judgment. He gives it generously and ungrudgingly, as long as I'm asking in faith and not doubt. Because a doubt, doubter is like a surging sea. It's driven and tossed by the wind. And we should not expect to receive anything from God because we're double-minded and unstable in all of our ways when we're asking with doubt and not with faith. But when we ask in faith, his promise is that he's going to meet us and he's going to give us that wisdom that we need. This is the sort of wisdom that we ought to offer to one another. This God-given wisdom. And that's what Paul is desiring to offer to the Corinthian church when he's saying, I'm going to give you the gospel because that's actually what's going to change the condition of your heart. It's actually what's going to lead to the unification of the church. It's also what's going to lead toward the good works that God desires to do. And if that was the solution in Paul's perspective for the Corinthian church, in my perspective, it's going to be the same solution for us right now and the condition of sin that we're seeing in our country, in our world, on both sides of the political spectrum, in every human heart. What changes things? Answer the gospel. Let's keep reading. It says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but it's the power of of God to us who are being saved. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks ask ask for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block for the Jews 
and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Let's unpack this. So the word of the cross is foolishness. And it's foolishness to a lot of different people from a lot of different perspectives. The two people groups that he's talking about here in this section are the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, But the promise that was given to us by God in the Old Testament when it says, um, for it is written, this is from... Isaiah 29, 14, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. So when Jesus came, the Jews were not expecting for the Messiah to come like Jesus did in a manger. I mean, not the sort of leader that they were expecting. They wanted their Messiah to free them from the Roman rule that they were being oppressed by. The Israelite people had patterns over centuries of being enslaved, right? They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, then they were rescued, and then they were held as captives in Babylon and all of this history for for God's people. But when Jesus came on the scene, he came in a time of history where the Israelite people were under the authority of Roman rule, and they hated it. They wanted to go back to a time where they were free to worship and live and they weren't being taxed out of their brains. They wanted the Messiah to save them physically. But what Jesus came instead was to save them spiritually and also not just them, but the entire world. This is when the Gentiles, which is anybody other than a Jew, is grafted into the story where we now can receive the blessing that the Israelite people kept and protected for centuries for us. I mean, this is an incredible honor, right? But the Jews come in asking for signs. And the Greeks come in asking for wisdom. I got all the questions I got to know all the statistics. I got to know all the, and that's, that's not a bad thing. It's okay. Ask the questions. Remember, we just went through that if you're asking with faith and not doubting that he's going to give you every answer, he's going to provide the wisdom. It's his promise to you in scripture. And then uh, the Jews are coming in saying, we want to see a sign. We want to see proof of, we want to see proof. We want to tangibly see it. And the Greeks were asking, um, and the Gentiles were asking, we want the statistics and we want the information and we want the entire picture. And then you get Jesus. And Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. They didn't understand him. They didn't understand or able to perceive through their lens and their expectation for who they believed the, the Messiah would be, that when Jesus came, he, be, he was a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. We crucified you on a cross, dude. That was a Roman source of crucifixion. Part of the reason why Jesus was uh, killed the way that he was killed was because he was so charismatic. And in that season, directly following even Julius Caesar and um, that 
profound story of history where all of a sudden now Rome is an empire and it's being led uh, by a ruler that Romans didn't even want to take a chance with somebody like Jesus who was so charismatic and had such a following. That's one of the reasons why the Jew, the, that's the angle the Jews took in order to get the Romans to crucify him. So, but to those who are being called, it's a totally different story. For those who are being called, for both Jews and for Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were given the ability to choose, because God created them for relationship with God, like I said, so that meant that relationship had to be an act of the will. They used that will to rebel against God. They chose human wisdom over the wisdom of God. They wanted, that was Satan's lure and temptation was, uh, God's trying to keep you from being like him. And he's holding back. He's uh, robbing you of something greater. Go ahead. Take a bite. Find out for yourself. And that condition where the authority is placed on human wisdom is exactly what needed to be dethroned in our hearts through Jesus Christ. So that's what they're talking about. That's what Paul's talking about right now. When God's foolishness, the foolishness of Jesus coming in a manger and living a normal life as a regular human being, coming in flesh and not in power and authority and flaunting, but laying his life down, taking on the form of his creation, going into the grave and raising again three days later, breaking the chains of hell and death and setting us free for eternity in Christ. That is foolishness in the eyes of the world. We want Superman to come flying through the air and making it so evident like, wow, oh my gosh, that must be God. But Jesus instead humbled himself and became the servant of all. But to those who are being called, we look at that and we say, wow, that is the power of God. Wow, that is the wisdom of God. Wow. We see this through Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the story of scripture. We go, wow. It couldn't have ever happened any other way. How beautiful. And it's an example now that I get to follow in. I can't be Superman flying through the air, but I can be Jesus washing the feet of Jesus, Judas, the one who would betray him. We get to follow in that footsteps. He's destroying human wisdom and giving us the ability to walk in an opposite spirit, opposite and contrary to the world's wisdom and anchoring our choices and our thoughts and our actions in the wisdom of God. We're almost done. Let's keep reading. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in this world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus 
who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, I'm going to tell you the same thing, and I'm going to give myself the same mandate. Consider your calling. Consider your calling. There's so much talk around what's my calling in life? What am I here for? What is God's will for my life? (laughs) But we see the central message here that it's actually not about you. It's not about God's will for your life. It's not about your calling. It's about what God has chosen. Did you catch the repetition in this section? Verse 27, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in this world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Why? So that nobody could say that they can boast in themselves. If we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the Lord. No book, no podcast, no well-crafted sermon, no human wisdom could ever come up against the wisdom that comes directly from God himself. If we're going to boast in anything, let us boast in the Lord. This is our calling. And you might feel weak right now. Well, that's good because he's chosen you to shame the things that look strong. You might feel foolish right now. All right, good. Because God has chosen you to the foolish things. (laughs) Praise God for that, because that is me. Absolutely, 100%. He's He's using the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the insignificant, the despised in this world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Isn't that so poetic? You are not nothing. You are not insignificant. You are not despised. God chose you because of that. In your weakness, God's strength is made perfect. He has chosen you. So you might feel weak as a mother. You might feel weak as a friend, or maybe you're running a business, or maybe you're chasing after um, some talent or passion, and you're cultivating new things in your life, and you might look at it and just think, oh my gosh, this is way too big for me, and I can't do it, and I'm not sure where to go and where to turn, and Lord, I feel so foolish. I'm, I'm lacking wisdom. I feel so weak. I feel so insignificant. And God right now is speaking over your life. I have chosen you. I have chosen you. Go out and therefore and do the things that I have called you to do. The last words that Jesus gave to us was go, go, make disciples of all nations, share this gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. I am with you even to the end of the age. We are not doing any of this by ourselves. God has chosen you, but it doesn't end there. He has also empowered you. He's also sustaining you. He's also moving you forward. He's secured your eternity. And when we're living within a secured eternity, then literally nothing that we could ever face should rock us in our 
journey to that eternal security. We already know how the story ends. So if we're going to boast, let's boast in the Lord because Jesus became the wisdom of God for us. Jesus has given us the example and he's given us righteousness, a righteousness that we could not deserve or earn. He's given us a sanctification. He's cleansed us. He's made us holy. He's consecrated us for his glory. And he has redeemed us. He paid the price for us in order that we can, as it is written, boast in the Lord. Challenge yourself this week. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? How can you boast in the Lord in your family, in your circles, in your workplace, in your everyday, day-to-day life? Because this is the calling. We are to boast in the Lord, laying down our human wisdom, picking up the wisdom from God, and running wholeheartedly the race that he set out for us to run. I love you guys, and I'm praying for you. Talk to you next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have a second, leave a review or post a comment here on the podcast page. It helps this podcast to be seen by other people so we can spread this message far and wide. I cannot wait until next week and I'll talk to you soon.